With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Know It All. The ABCs of Education. A platform of Allison Brown Consulting. ABC. Where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All. This is Allison, Allison Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm excited to replay for you this show with the inimitable Dr. Gavar Mate. Before I do, I just want to remind you that we are on Twitter. Follow me at Allison R. Brown, and I will be tweeting during the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. Enjoy the show. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education, where we aim to make you a know-it-all about education law, policy, and practice as it affects you. We have candid conversations about education issues and real-life solutions to those issues that impact your community. Listen to us live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern, or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash know-it-all. Today's show is a featured show on the Blog Talk Radio website. Be sure to follow us at blogtalkradio.com. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity and public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Our sponsor for this episode of Know It All is The Root DC, part of the Washington Post family. The Root DC focuses on news for and about African Americans in the DC region. You will be able to find episodes of Know It All and my blog posts following each show on my website and on the Root DC website, WashingtonPost.com slash local slash The Root DC. Also, in partnership with The Root DC and the Interactivity Foundation, we will be hosting monthly community discussions about education at DC public facilities beginning on Saturday, March 16th, when we will discuss schools and discipline. And now for today's show. What's really wrong with our kids? Us. Today's generation of children feels like a generation of wandering souls who are disconnected from a solid foundation in self-confident parenting. Attention deficit disorder and its companions, restlessness, short attention span, and impulsivity, as well as autism, peer pressure and bullying, suicide and violence, are affecting our children in growing numbers. My guest today is the world-renowned physician and best-selling author, Dr. Gabor Mate. He is based in Vancouver, Canada, and his books have been published in nearly 20 languages worldwide. His four books are Scattered, How Attention Deficit Disorder Originates and What You Can Do About It, When the Body Says No, Exploring the Stress-Disease Connection, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, and with, Together with Dr. Gordon Neufeld, Hold on to your kids. My parents need to matter. Good morning to you, Dr. Mate. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Good morning. So I wonder if you would start by first talking to us. I've heard you speak about the destruction of American childhood. Would you talk about that? Sure. Uh, what I mean by that is that it's well known now that childhood, in order to unfold according to its um, full potential, needs the right environment. If you look at what's happening in the United States these days, you have increasing number of kids being diagnosed with all kinds of disorders, uh, millions of kids, literally many millions, uh, on medications of all kinds, from stimulants to antidepressants to antipsychotics. You have the increased problem of bullying, the precocious sexuality, the obviously, and in some cases, tragic uh, aggression in the schools and elsewhere. And generally the sense that parents have that something is out of control, that they no longer have the influence they used to have. Now, if we don't look at these problems as medical diseases or as behavior issues, which fundamentally they're not, 
we have to look at the conditions that give rise to them. And what I'm saying is that the conditions for the healthy development of children, including the healthy development of children's brains, have been uh, largely uh, eroded in uh, North America. So when you say that, that these things are not diseases, what specifically are you talking Are you talking about ADD? And, well, whether we're um, talking about ADD, whether we're talking about autism, whether we're talking about Asperger's, Tourette's, whether we're talking about the, 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 the so-called oppositional defiant disorder, the reactive attachment disorder, um, and then beyond that, behaviors like bullying and so on. We're not looking at either at... Um, inherited medical conditions, nor are we looking at just um, bad behaviors. What we're looking at is the distorted development of children owing to the fact that the circumstances which would demand, which would support healthy development, are no longer available to them. And that actually affects, and those stress circumstances under which the parents are functioning and the diminished connections between parents and kids are not the fault of individual parents. They're the result of a huge cultural and economic shift, and that's what I mean by the destruction of American childhood. Will you talk about attachment, what that is and why it's important? Attachment is very simply, in this context, the drive for closeness and proximity with other human beings, and it has the fundamental purpose of being taken care of, or, on the other hand, the purpose of taking care of. Now, attachment is the most important human dynamic. It's essential to us pretty much all our lives. Uh, as a species, we don't survive without it, without contact and closeness with other people. But particularly in childhood, it's just the paramount essential need that and drive that the child has because the human child is the least mature, the most uh, dependent of any creature in the universe. That means that without attachment, they simply don't uh, survive, and with poor attachments, they don't thrive. So that attachment is the central need. In fact, it's as as important as food and shelter. And when it's undermined, when the conditions for it aren't there, then then uh, things happen to child development that uh, are not healthy. In and fact, I've heard you, you know, talk about in, the in, fact in that... Fact, you know, in fact, you know what? There was an article in the Annals of Psychiatry maybe six years ago uh, in which a world American world expert on, on trauma quotes another neuroscientist, Dr. Don Tucker from Oregon, who says that for the human brain, the most important information for successful development is conveyed by the social rather than the physical environment. And early patterns of attachment affect the quality of information processing throughout life. In other words, early patterns of attachment influence how we see the world, how we think of the world, how we connect to the world, how we see ourselves. And so, you know, it's of crucial importance in shaping our consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you talk about how babies, when when um, human children are born, we're still so far underdeveloped that we have to stay physically attached to our parents and uh, that we still need that emotional attachment for many, many years. Will you talk about that? Well, you know, most people need that emotional attachment all their lives. Uh, there was a study in the Newman Journal of Medicine a few years ago that looked at elderly couples. We're talking about people at the end of life. And when one of them is hospitalized, the other one has a significantly risk, increased risk of dying mm-hmm. because that attachment relationship is not just a psychological necessity. It actually supports people's immune systems and, and, and physiological balance. Now, for the infant who is utterly helpless, who is completely dependent, there's just no life without it. I mean, it's um, an absolute need. And the and the nature of the attachment relationships and how, how those um, parents are able to respond, not just to the physical, but to the emotional cues of the infant, are of crucial importance in shaping the brain circuits of that child. So our brain chemistry and our brain uh, architecture, the microarchitecture of the brain, is very much affected by the quality of our attachment relationships. And again, what I'm saying is that the reason we're seeing so many kids now with uh, problems is because those attachments are no longer available the way they need to be. And it's not because parents don't love their kids. It's because they're so stressed and so distracted and physically absent from their kids' lives. Mm-hmm. Well, you talk about the current the current social structure that can, that 
lends itself to um, kind of disrupting that that connection between parents and children? Well, first of all, because of the economic crisis, and although we think of the downturn as something recent, but in fact, the American uh, uh, working people, uh, wage earners, have made no headway since the 1970s. So uh, two, two people are having to work now to support the family. That means that parents are physically not in their children's lives most of the day. And that's a completely aberration in human history. I mean, people, children always used to grow up around their parents, in peacetime at least. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, with um, increasing divorce rates, you have large numbers of single mothers now who tend to be on the poorer side of, of the economic um, pyramid. And it was under the Clinton administration that they brought in rules that you could only be a welfare for so long. And that means now that a single mom now with a small child, after a while, I don't know how many years, one or two years on welfare, now she has to go to work. But where do these people find work? No, they don't find convenient jobs, well-paying jobs close to home. They find poor-paying jobs far away from home. That means they have to commute for an hour or two each way, plus the whole working day they don't see their children who are in poorly staffed and poorly funded daycares. Well, this is what I mean, that that, that the uh, social economic structure interferes them with the healthy development of the child. We hear a lot of conversation about ADD, attention deficit disorder, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, You, in your book, Scattered, have written extensively about ADD um, and the the kind of three categories. Will you talk about ADD from your research and what you have learned? Well, the the three... uh diagnostic features of ADD, although they don't all have to be there in any one individual, are poor attention span, you know, tuning out, absent-mindedness, difficulty focusing. Secondly, there may or may not be physical hyperactivity, difficulty sitting still, restlessness, fidgeting, um, constant activity, and constant need for activity. Thirdly, poor impulse control, so that when something occurs in the mind, uh, the child will just blurt it out without thought, without any inhibition, so that they keep getting into trouble. The adults will do a lot of impulse shopping because they can't stop themselves. Very similar to addicts, actually. Now, again, the, the medical profession, my profession, says this is an inherited genetic disease. And actually, I have it, as do two of my kids. But I don't, mm-hmm. think, for, I don't think for a minute that it's genetic. Uh, actually, what's really going on is that when when a child is growing up under stress circumstances, uh, and and when the brain is developing, and the human brain, as we were saying earlier, develops under the impact of the environment, and especially the human brain, because most of our brain development occurs after birth and not before, and that's because our heads are so big, they have to be so big, that and the pelvis so we can walk on two legs, is so narrow, so that our heads have to emerge from the womb before they're developed, or at least before they're as developed as they are in other animals, comparing us to a horse that can run on the first day of life. So that means that human brain development, for the most part, occurs after birth, 80-90% of it. Now, a child then who's born into a stressed environment, uh, how does he or she cope with it as an infant? Well, you can't escape, fight, or ask for help which is the normal response to stress. The child tunes out. But he's tuning out when his brain is developing. And that tuning out becomes then programmed into the brain. This is all purely because the parents are stressed and under stress circumstances, when the parents are stressed, the infant is stressed physiologically and even show this. When mothers are depressed, their children will have high levels of the stress hormone cortisol in their bodies. Even three years later, they'll have high levels of cortisol. If a mother has postpartum depression, in the child's first day of life, the mother will have, or the child, sorry, if the mother has postpartum depression in a child's first day of life, the child will have elevated cortisol levels even three years later. Now, elevated cortisol interferes with healthy brain development. So that the more stressed the parents are, the more stressed the children are, the more they have to tune out to deal with it, and the more their brains are being affected by all that stress. And I'm saying that the epidemic of ADD is nothing but an epidemic of stress. And, you know, I had a very stressed infancy as a Jewish infant in the Second World War under Nazi occupation in Eastern Europe. 
My children had a stressed infancy because their father was a workaholic doctor who wasn't available. So that that stress is what's passed on from generation to generation, not the condition. The condition then develops because the circumstances are are so stressed. And this is why I think, and this is what I'm why I'm saying, we're seeing we're seeing increased numbers. I mean, if something is genetic, you don't see the numbers going up because genes don't change in a population over a few years or even a few decades or even a few hundred years. But as the parenting environment has become more stressed, families are less connected, they have less support, there's less um, extended family, fewer adults for the child to relate to, less connection between adults and children, more stress on the parents, you're going to see more and more kids. And if you look at the the program Sesame Street, mm-hmm. who was it designed for? It was designed for kids with short attention spans because mm-hmm. the whole idea was the short little skits and the funny little advertisements for the letter A or the number 5 and and uh, it's all about short short segments it was actually designed for kids with short attention spans to teach them how to read and how to count now who were these kids culturally and economically they were the inner kids of the eastern ghettos because that was the most stressed population at the time what we find is that those same pressures have been generalized now so you're getting kids with short attention spans in all strata of the population and what does medicine purport to do for for children with ADD, and what are the alternatives to medicine? Well, you know, the pharmacology can be helpful. The, uh, the chemical that seems to be deficient in the brain of the ADD child or adult, like me, is something called dopamine, which is essential for incentive and motivation and therefore for attention. So when we get a stimulant like Ritalin or Adderall or Silent or, or, or so on, um, um, dexedrine. We're elevating the levels of dexedrine. Sorry, elevating the levels of dopamine in the brain, and the child or the adult can pay better attention. The problem is, is that the the first of all, medications can have side effects. Secondly, they can be misused, and thirdly, they're not the answer, because if the problem is a developmental problem, if the problem is that the child's brain is not developed then the question we should be asking is, how do we help these kids or adults develop better brains? Because the good mm-hmm. news is that brain development can happen even later on in life. So the medications, all they do, if they work at all, is to suppress symptoms. That may not be a bad thing in itself. So I'm not, you know, I'm a physician. I've prescribed them myself. I've taken them myself. But, mm-hmm. but, but they don't solve the problem because the problem has to be how to promote the child. Or the, the real question is, how do we promote the child's brain development? And for that, we have to give them the right conditions. And those conditions are calm parenting, uh, school environments that are understanding and attachment-based, patient, uh, school environments that don't just try to weed out the kids who have got behavior problems but actually embrace these kids, school environments that uh, that are geared to the brains that children have, not school environments that try to force the kids into a certain box but on the other hand, actually are designed for kids who've got challenges. It's very different to what we're doing now. So many, many of the things that we do, we give these kids medications, but many of the things that we do actually harm their development. Hmm. Will you talk about um, acting out and what that what that means? Well, sure. Um, acting out... Um, the way we usually use that phrase, we use it to mean a kid who's behaving badly, being obstreperous, oppositional, rude, aggressive. But when we actually think about that phrase acting out, it actually means portraying in behavior something that we don't have the words to say in language. And so the example I often use is the game of charades, where you're not allowed to speak, you literally not permitted to use language, and therefore you have to act out. Now, our children's behaviors are always acting out in that in that sense of the phrase, so that the children are portraying some emotional dynamic, some emotional message that they don't have the words to say in language because they've never been taught it, and because they're too impulsive. Now, our job as parents or educators or child care workers or psychologists, whatever we do, 
It's not to react to the behaviors as if the behaviors are the problem. The behaviors are just the acting out of a problem. They're just the manifestations, the the symptoms of a problem. The problem is in a child's attachment relationships. So that rather than punishing children and, 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 and uh, creating more pain for them, we need to bring them into better attachments with the nurturing adults. That's what all those behaviors are all about, is their pleas for help, no matter what form they come. So that aggression in a child is not bad behavior. Aggression is always due to frustration. And what is something that frustrates people, adults or children, when their needs aren't being met? And what is the child's biggest need? A secure, dependable, unconditionally accepting relationship with adults. That's what biggest, the child's biggest need is. When children are aggressive, that's what they're acting on. It's really that simple. And so then we, when we punish them and hold it against them, we're further embittering their relationship and making the child more insecure and less confident. And therefore, um, they're going to act out more. So what can what can parents do? And I and I know that um, you've talked about uh, parenting being important. I mean, it is it is the subtitle of your book. Hold on to your kids. Why parents need to matter more than peers. Um, what can parents do to really cultivate attachment with their children and and to um, let their children know that they they can find a safe space in their parents and that their their parents are. Um, where they should be looking to model behavior, etc. Well, the first thing you have to do is to understand what's going on right now. And what's going on right now is that, as I mentioned, children have this huge need to attach. I mean, they can't help it. You and I as adults, we have a need to attach. In fact, what is the biggest uh, threat that we face to our mental balance is usually if our attachment relationships are threatened, you know, somehow. But for children, it's an absolute necessity. So the children have no choice but to attach. And when the adults aren't in the kids' lives enough, then the child will attach to whoever's around. In our culture, whoever's around, whoever's around is other kids. It's like the duckling uh, imprinting on the mother duck, preferably. But in the absence of the mother duck, the duckling will have to imprint on whatever moves, which might be just a mechanical toy, which can't possibly bring up that duckling to adulthood same with children. They have to attach to somebody. Now, when kids from an early age spend most of the day with each other, they attach to each other. And when they start attaching to each other, they start resisting the parents. Because what the parents say no longer carries the same weight because the kids are no longer trying to attach to the parents. They become peer attached. So we have to be understanding this dynamic. We have to see what's going on. Understand that this is not a behavior issue. It's an attachment issue. In the first place, in a, if, 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 if the United States was a civilized country, that there would be maternity leave so that mothers could stay home with their kids for at least a year. Mm-hmm. Now, the average maternity leave in, in the United States is six weeks of unpaid leave. Uh, for the child's b- develop, healthy brain development, he or she needs that contact with the mom or with the mother and parent. In some countries, they even provide paternity leaves. So that, that's the first condition, is that the parents need to be around. When the parents are not around, the child's got no parent to attach to. Having said that, and also when kids are sent to daycare, because they have to be, because the parents have to work, those daycares have to be places of attachment, not just places of physical caretaking. But, but, but the adults there have to be emotionally available attachment figures for the child, so the child can maintain secure adult attachments. Now, many daycares are inadequately funded, inadequately staffed. Um, the, the workers there are inadequately respected, inadequately paid. Mm-hmm. Children are not getting that attachment. They, therefore, they connect to other kids. So we have to recognize what's going on here. Secondly, if we haven't seen the kids um, after the whole day, we can't assume that they're still our kids. The, the child's only way, the small child's only way to connect to you is physically when you're not there, they're not connected with you. You see... Um, you and I are mature enough that we can connect and attach with uh, to people without physically being with them. We can just remember them, hold their image in our hearts in a loving way. And we might not see them for five years, but we could still love them and still feel connected to them. Small children can't do that. The only way they can attach is physically. When they're not with you, they're just not with you at all. 
And so when you see them again, they're not yours. You have to bring them back into relationship with you. You have to spend quality time with them. So the family meal, the family meal is a minority institution. Uh, but I mean minority, I mean not any particular ethnic minority. I mean minority of people still have family meals where they actually spend time relating to each other. Or when they do spend time together, it's in front of the TV set, which means the kids are getting to the attached to the TV set rather than to the parents. Then on the weekends, when the parents do have some free time, they need to spend that with kids, their kids. Not sleepovers, not play dates, where kids hang on with each other even more, but actually with the nurturing parents. Um, if there's an extended family, we need to bring them into the picture so that the child has many attachments, attachment figures, adults to relate to. So in our book, Hold On To Your Kids, we talk about many ways where we can, even in a stressed culture, maintain that attachment relationship. And, and, and in that book and in Scattered on ADD, I do talk about the ways that we can parent kids with attachment in mind. But the real salient point is is that we have to be conscious of it. We have to be aware of the dynamic. We can't assume that it's working on our behalf when it isn't anymore. You know, schools and educators find themselves in an untenable position. They are having to deal with standardized testing and um, federal regulations and state and local requirements um, and are probably um, less and less able to, to create attachment centers or to develop themselves as attachment centers. For For schools and educators who are thinking about this, what does an attachment center look like? What can they do to develop their staff as the the adult um, attachments for their child, their students? Well, when I refer to the destruction of American childhood, I also would have, had I thought of it at the time, when I was speaking to you about it, included the school system. Because just as you say, the schools are now driven by results. They're driven by short-term results, and they're driven by they're driven by very short-sighted short-term results. I mean, if you want to be a good teacher in this system, you don't get a job in a challenged neighborhood where people are struggling and their families are often um, split families and, and people are economically under pressure. You get a job in a good upper-middle-class neighborhood where there's at least one parent at home with the child most of the day, where there's a library and where the parents know better than to put their kids in front of a TV set. And in that environment, you're going to be a brilliant teacher because your kids are going to do well on standardized tests, not because of anything you did, but simply because that's the material that's coming to your classrooms. If, on the other hand, you choose to work in a challenged neighborhood, dedicate your life to helping kids in trouble, you're going to be a poor teacher because in those neighborhoods, kids don't have the supports and the background that help them really succeed. Now... And then people, and then teachers are punished. So teachers are actually being punished and criticized for the failures of American society. And 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 the goals of of of, of uh, the standardized tests completely ignore the child's actual need for healthy development, for creativity, for spontaneous unfolding of their intelligence, for um, the child's need to learn how to learn. They just measure remembered wrote mechanical data. It's anti-human is what it is. And children were never meant to learn that way. Never, ever have human beings learned that way. Now, what schools can do, and again, you know, when schools are under such pressure, and even under the Obama administration, this hasn't got better. It's got worse. And as far as I know, as far as I can tell from the outside, and this is despite the research that shows no value whatsoever to standardized testing. This is despite the fact that some of the people that actually originated standardized testing have, have recanted and they've renounced their former views. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't seem to penetrate to the level of the decision makers. So what can schools do? Well, ideally what schools should do is schools should be places of attachment where the the child's emotional security is more important than the child's academic um, attainment in the short term because when children are emotionally secure, they will spontaneously learn. But for that, you have to have a very different school environment. You have to take the emphasis on rote learning, 
You have to take the emphasis on standardized tests. You have to provide lots of support for um, ancillary staff, teachers, aides, and so on, who can spend one-on-one time with the troubled kids who need that one-on-one to make their brains function properly. You need to get rid of all the punishments and, and, and timeouts and, and, and um, zero-tolerance policies that exclude the troubled kids. You need to include these kids a lot more. Uh, you need to train teachers to understand attachment. Teach, I mean, attachment is the most important dynamic, as I keep emphasizing, in human life. And yet, medical doctors, uh, teachers, and I dare say not even psychologists, none of them get any training about it in, in, in education, for the most part. So the most important thing in human life, we totally ignore. And then we expect kids to develop properly. So that the schools needs to understand what attachment is all about, and they need to be trained around it. They will find, by the way, that these children will do better academically because, again, when children are emotionally secure, they will want to learn. They'll be curious. They'll be spontaneously creative and inventive. But that would take a huge shift of consciousness on the part of the educational system. Mm-hmm. But in, in the meanwhile, those teachers or principals or the, the school here and there that gets it, that 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 spontaneously um on their own because of their own nature perhaps move towards an attachment based relationship with the kids, they find that the kids are far more successful in their classrooms. But and that happens here here and there in a spot like fashion, but it's not systematic. Are there are there places in the world that are doing this well, you talk in your book about, um, I think it was Japan, that is even experiencing this, this phenomenon of, of peer orientation and uh, um, children attaching to their peers before they're attaching to their, their parents. Is there somewhere in the world that is doing attachment-based parenting and teaching well? Well, there are spots here. I mean, the schools here and there, like, for example, you know, in the um, Montessori schools, uh, anywhere in the world, they do do this a whole lot better than than the rest of the population does. Parents who homeschool, I don't, I'm not a homeschool advocate because I would have been a terrible homeschool teacher given my lack of patience and all that. But parents who manage to do that, their kids on the whole tend to do a whole lot better because of the attachments being much more secure. Um, in in certain rural areas in Europe, you still get this. But by and large, under the pressures of globalization, uh, I, I know that in um, in, uh, in certain Scandinavian countries they made an effort, you know. But for the most part, under the impact of globalization, uh, industrialization, the, all that the destruction of community and neighborhood that 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 implies, it's more and more lost. A lost quantity in this world, a lost quality in this world. In your opinion, what role do nutrition and sleep play in um, attachment and and peer orientation? Well, I really talk about those things because they're, in a sense, they're so obvious. I mean. At least, who theoretically doesn't understand that people need to sleep in order for their brains to function? And who doesn't understand, at least theoretically, that children need a good nutrition in order to function well? Now, you probably saw that by now famous article in the New York Times last week by Michael Moss about the how the American food industry plots to sell addictive substances to kids, sugar and salt and, and high-fat content and how they try to manipulate the food products to, to maximize the addictive appeal to children. It's really worth reading. Uh, in fact, he's written a book about it. And the author's name is Michael Moss. Right. Now, those kind of foods undermine healthy thought, healthy brain functioning. And it's what most many of our kids eat. Now, the problem is twofold. One is that, first of all, those, free, those foods undermine healthy functioning, and they have this epidemic of obesity and, uh, and diabetes and so on in the, amongst American, American kids these days. But on the other hand, the more stressed people are, they also the more they gravitate towards junk food. 
I mean, any of us, when are we most likely to want to have something fatty or, sh- or sweet or salty it's when we're stressed? Because those substances temporarily soothe the brain. Like like any, like say, heroin would or cocaine would. <laughs> you know, they're addictive. Mm-hmm. Right? But, so that the more stressed kids are and the less connected to their parents, the more they're going to go for the junk foods. The problem then is how do you induce or introduce them to a healthy diet when they're not looking to you for advice, when they're resisting you. So when kids become peer-oriented, once they become peer-attached and they start looking to the peer group, they no longer care about what the parents want or suggest. So they resist. So on the one hand, they're driven to the substances because of the stress. And secondly, they resist the adults. So the companies, in this article in the New York Times Magazine last Sunday, not this last Sunday, but the Sunday before, actually exploit that. And they have advertisements aimed at kids saying, well, everybody tells you what to do the rest of the day, but lunchtime is yours. So they actually deliberately exploit this in order to give kids a sense of control, which, which of course, is who's actually in control is the food companies. But but the kids, they get to decide what junk food they're going to eat. You know, I, I hear you speak, and, and the image that's in my mind is of Lord of the Flies, um, you know, the, the famous novel of sure. children who are stranded together on an island and end up having to fend for themselves, and the results are um, disastrous. Um, I wonder if you would speak a little bit about um, bullying and violence and, and some of the things that we are seeing in society and, and in our young children um, more and more as we are maybe more focused on it or maybe it's more prevalent. Will you just talk about that? By the way, I will, but as I'm talking to you, I'm in front of my computer and somebody just sent me an article from the from Science Daily. Can I just mm-hmm. tell you about it? Sure, um, please. The headline is, Mom's placenta reflects her exposure to stress and impacts offspring's brain. And so I've been talking about that for a while, but more and more research comes in, is that when mothers are stressed during pregnancy, that actually um, increases the levels of stress hormone in the placenta. It also uh, changes the function of certain proteins in the placenta, and that actually uh, um, affects the development of the child's brain. So already during pregnancy, uh, the stress is increasing the, the abnormality of the child's brain. And this is a constant phenomenon in our in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought I'd read that to you, but in the meanwhile, I did, and I forgot your question. What was it? It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and this, this I think, relates. Um, I was asking about bullying and violence. Bullying, and sure, yeah. Okay, so... Do you think that it originates with stress in the womb, or can originate with stress um, in the womb? I'm not sure I would explain it that way, but... Um, Certainly, uh, studies have shown that the more stressed mothers are during pregnancy, the more likely their kids are to have behavior problems at age three or four, and the more likely their their kids are to have ADHD at age seven. Mm-hmm. And kids with ADHD are often bullied, and sometimes they become bullies themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, to talk about bullying, uh, again. In North America, it's understood or seen mostly as a behavior problem. So the thing is, how do you stop the behavior? Well, you do it by punishment, because it's the problem's behavior. But if you understood again that bullying is just another form of acting out, in in the sense that I <clears throat> explained it before, bullying is actually has to do with attachment. Now, in any attachment relationship, there needs to be a hierarchy, so that between the parents and the child, there's a dominance, and ideally. It's the parent that dominates. And when I say dominates, I don't mean to exploit or to uh, abuse. I mean to take care of. So that mm-hmm. you don't let a one-year-old decide whether they can go outside naked into the snow to play. You know, you have to dominate them. You have to say, no, you know, you don't do that. You know, So dominance is a part of a healthy attachment relationship between an immature and a mature creature's. So, but we're dominating in that case in order to take care of, in order to protect, in order to um, make secure the vulnerable child. Now, but but so in order to dominate in a caring way, you have to care. You have to actually uh, 
be emotionally open and vulnerable because caring is vulnerable because when you care about somebody, you can be hurt. When you're in love with somebody, you can really be hurt. Mm-hmm. So that so that caring is really a vulnerable state. And the parent has to be vulnerable. The, the parent has to have the sadness when the kid is suffering. The, the parent has to really worry for the child. Now, these things are vulnerable states. Now, so we're dominating, but we're being vulnerable at the same time. And from that vulnerability comes our caring. And from that caring comes our vulnerability. Now, the bully also wants to dominate, but without caring. So what the bully does is he actually exploits the vulnerability of the other person in order to gain dominance. So in bullying, the the vulnerability is not protected. The vulnerability is exploited so that you can dominate. Now, why would somebody do that? Somebody would want to dominate to exploit somebody's vulnerability, not care about that other person's vulnerability, when their own vulnerability has been shut down. So now you've all you got is the urge to dominate without the vulnerability. In fact, you even attack vulnerability. This guy who killed the, the children in Newton, yeah. he hated vulnerability. That's why he killed kids. Why did he hate vulnerability? I'm sure because his, his own vulnerability had been crushed when he was a small child. And, and so one of the responses to to the shutting down of vulnerability, if you still have the dominant, domination instinct, is then to become a bully. So that the bully is always somebody who is desperate for attachment, he was very hurt in those attachments, and he retains the urge to dominate, but now he exploits the vulnerability of others. Now, how do you help a person like that? You don't do it by punishing him. You don't do it by excluding him. You 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 do it by making it safe for him to feel vulnerable again. Mm-hmm. And that has to do, again, with the relationship with adults. Mm-hmm. Attachment. You talk about the um, ACE studies, adverse childhood experiences. Um, certainly the, the Newtown shooting would be a, a horrible experience for any child who witnessed that. But for the the shooter there, Adam Lanza, who um, who you say whose his vulnerability was likely crushed in his own childhood, mm-hmm. what what do the ACE studies tell us about that? Well, we know that his parents were divorced. I don't know mm-hmm. anything else what happened to him. I don't know what kind of home he grew up in, how he was treated, and I, and I, but I can surmise. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because, in general principles, everybody who ends up that way was a traumatized person. But uh, the adverse childhood experiences studies uh, performed in the United States, in California largely, uh, looked at, well, exactly what the phrase says. An adverse childhood experience is some adversity that occurs in childhood, such as almost anything that interferes with the, with the atta- with healthy attachment relationships, such as physical or sexual or emotional abuse, the death of a parent, the jailing of a parent, a rancorous divorce is one of them, um, the uh, presence of addiction on the part of a parent, violence in a family, mental illness in a parent. And for each of these adverse childhood experiences, the risk of all kinds of dysfunction goes up exponentially, whether it's addiction, whether it's behavior problems, attention problems, um, even physical illness like rheumatoid arthritis and cancer and so on. So that the more childhood adversity, the greater that the risk to the child for some kind of developmental outcome that's not healthy. And the more you add them together, they multiply each other. So that by the time a male child, and I talk about this in my addiction book, but by the time a male child has had six of these adverse childhood experiences, his risk of being a substance-dependent injection-using addict is 4,600% greater than that of a child with no such experiences, a 46-fold increase in the risk. And it goes back, again, to disturbed attachments and to the interference with healthy brain development, the destruction of childhood. Um, We hear a lot of talk about autism, lately, and um, people have speculated that there's a, a growth in the number of, of cases of autism. Is it true that autism is growing as a as a phenomenon in 
this country, and um, what does that mean? Well, again, um, the statistics are that we're seeing autism is being diagnosed now at a rate that's 30 or 40 fold over uh, three or four decades ago. So people argue, what does that mean? Because we're just including more people and or more criteria. Um, the diagnosis is it because we're better at recognizing it. Was it genuinely increasing? Well, it really seems to be that it's really genuinely increasing significantly. Now, as soon as we see that, we know that we're not dealing with something genetic because genes again don't change that rapidly. Not even close to. I mean, there's, there's no possibility of, it, of that being genetic. What I think is, I haven't researched it as deeply as I have ADHD or other childhood issues, but my impression very much is that what we're dealing with is perhaps a genetic predisposition, which, by the way, is not the same as a predetermination. In other words, a predisposition increases the risk, but it doesn't cause it. A genetic predisposition coupled with stress on on on, on, the, on pregnant women. That's I think that's what's going on in in in, in women in early childhood, uh, in the ch- in the early childhood. I think it's a stress effect. I think that's the center study I just told you about. Probably would have to explain uh, the rise in autism, um, and and along so you have high sensitive kids genetically perhaps somewhat predisposed, and then stressed mothers, not bad mothers by the way, not unloving mothers, but stressed mothers. Look, in my book on addiction, I make the point that the prevention of addiction needs to begin at the first prenatal visit by looking at the stresses on the woman and what kind of help she might need. I would argue the same thing about autism. In thinking about diagnosing conditions, um, you speak in your book, Scattered, about um, kind of the symptoms versus signs. And uh, symptoms are really kind of from the perspective of the person who's carrying them, and then signs are are what can lead to the diagnosis. Will you explain that? Sure. Um, A sign is something that the physician uh, is aware of. He observes it, but the person isn't experiencing it as, as a symptom. A symptom is something that the person feels. And the the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, often talks about symptoms when they're actually talking about external observations. So the DSM doesn't much care about people's internal lives. And psychiatry is not much concerned with people's internal lives these days. Uh, Mainstream psychiatry these days is very much concerned with the external manifestations, but not the internal dynamics. And then we try and suppress those manifestations through um, through drugs mostly, through through pharmaceuticals. So we're we're not so concerned with people's internal emotional experience. You have shared a lot about your um, in your in your writing about your own personal history um, that you have ADD, uh, and that you noticed at a certain point that your own children were peer oriented. Can yeah. you talk about when you first realized that your children, that the attachment between your you and your children was being disrupted? Well, as I mentioned, I believe earlier, I was a workaholic physician when my kids were small and, and throughout most of their development. Uh, it was my attention very much was on the outside, on serving my patients, on being needed and wanted. Why was that? Because I didn't feel that way personally. So I needed that reaffirmation from the world that I was important. It can be very addictive, and as many doctors know. And the result was that my kids weren't getting the attention they needed, and my and, uh, and my wife was very stressed. So that the really stressed and often very strained atmosphere in the home that affected our children. They're all very sensitive kids. It affected their development, and by default, they attached to the peer group instead. And I didn't really become aware of those dynamics until I myself was diagnosed with ADD in my early 50s, I began to look into it, thinking about it, understanding what happened to me, beginning to grasp what happened to my kids, and then writing that book on peer orientation along with my friend, the psychologist Gordon Neufeld, I fully understood precisely what had been missing in my kids' lives, but by the time I realized that, they were either fully grown or into their teen years. So, so um, 
you might say that I've made every mistake in the book, and but I, but I mean that I, in this case, I mean every mistake in my own book I've made, and what I've learned uh, through not just my own experience, but also the research and the literature and all that, um, is what informs the perspective in my book, my book, all of my books actually. So um, some things I wish I hadn't had to learn that way, but but I did. Well, you, our listeners, are now officially certified know-it-alls on um, the inner workings of our children and peer orientation and, and attachment. Go forth and share. Have a wonderful week. Join us next Tuesday, March 12th, when our guest will be David Domenici from the Center for Educational Excellence in Alternative Settings, and we'll be talking about schools and discipline. I want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. I also want to say a very special thank you to our guest, Dr. Gabor Mate. I, w- I will tell you, Dr. Mate, that your book, Hold On to Your Kids, has validated my husband's and my um, our parenting instincts and um, has reoriented us to really kind of shielding our children who are um, nine and six years old and, and making sure that we are their attachment. So I want to thank you for what for the work that you do and thank you for joining us this morning. You're welcome. And can I quickly mention my website? Please. The www.drgabormate.com, so www.drgabormate.com, and all my books are, you can read chapters online, articles I've written, YouTube videos, lectures, and so on, all accessible at my website, and uh, thank you very much for having me on. Dr. Mate is the world-renowned physician and best-selling author of four books, and we are very grateful for his presence today. Thank you all for joining us. Have a wonderful week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.